Y'all turn with me uh, to the book of Revelation, chapter 21. Revelation 21. Yesterday we had a great day. Uh, the church gathered for the last of our four missional pathway workshops. This one was called Advance. And we, our, our point was we were trying to decide what can we do to reach out further into our, into our community. There's a lot of people in our community that need to know Christ. You know, since I've gotten here, one of the things I've been emphasizing, we've been emphasizing as a church is that God brought certain people into your life for you to be a witness to them, for you to be a bridge between them and the God who loves them. And so your neighbors, your friends, your relatives, your coworkers, you should be praying and seeking ways to influence them toward Christ. But what about all the people who you and I probably won't meet? What about all the people who aren't friends with anybody in this room or anybody in the first service? What about them? Who's going to reach them? There are other churches, obviously, but there's plenty of people that don't really have contact with other believers. So how can we create bridges to reach out to them? How can we meet some of the needs of our community in the name of Christ that opens people's eyes and breaks down barriers so we can have those conversations that bring them to faith in Jesus? And so there's so many needs we could have approached, so many things we could have focused on. The, our task was to, foc- was to come up with three that we thought would be good for our church to focus on over the next three years. And here's what we came up with, and you're going to get more details on this in days to come. But we said we're going to focus on schools, on uh, local neighborhoods, people who live in the neighborhoods near the church and, and reaching out to them, and focus on city and county government and reaching out to those leaders and those employees and the programs they do. Um, so it's the job of the missional leadership team, members of this church, and the staff to come together over the next couple of months and come up with a plan for how we're going to address those three areas. I'll tell you right now, we won't do them all at once. We'll tackle them one at a time. But we're going to get to all of them, and we're going to give you opportunities to be involved in ministries that impact our community in a powerful way, and that, again, serve as a bridge leading people to the God who loves them. Now, that also leads me to something else, because I hate to tell you this, but time is passing quickly. It's going to be Christmas before you know it, and right after that, it's going to be 2019. I mean, we're less than two months left in this year. And we have some great plans for the coming year at First Baptist Church. When I got here two and a half years ago, uh, in, in February of 2016, one of the first things I did was I met with every life group, and I wanted to hear your hopes, your dreams, your fears, your concerns, your plans for our church. Then we as a church staff, all of the ministers got away for a week, our first uh, staff retreat in September of 2016. We, we were praying and saying, okay, Lord, what is the direction you want us to lead the church in in the days to come? What are you trying to accomplish in our lives? And what we decided was what God wants to do is take this 127-year-old church with all these great programs and great facilities and great people and turn our hearts toward those outside the walls. We were praying for a DNA transplant, for God to renovate our hearts and make us, number one, concerned about disciple making. Number one, concerned about the people who aren't here and how can we be bridges to Christ? How can we be people who lead them to Christ and help them grow up into Christ? So essentially, our our vision is that at the end of three years, that God would so change our hearts that every member of this church would consider him or herself a missionary to their city, to their block, to their workplace. So we're in the third year of that vision, praying for that. And I hope if you haven't heard me say things like that, you haven't been listening or you haven't been here, or I haven't been saying them well. 
But in the third year, we said, what are we going to do so that next year when we come together for our staff retreat next fall, we'll say, okay, now here's the next step. And our decision was, we're, our theme in 2019 is going to be all in. Those two words, all in. We want to challenge every member of our church, including ourselves, to be more committed to Christ and His kingdom and His glory than we've ever been before. And so there are four specific challenges we're laying in front of you, and I'm going to give you more details between now and, and, and January 1st. You're going to hear about this every Sunday. Number one, we're challenging every member of our church to read the entire Bible. I bet there's a lot of people here, probably the majority of us, who've never actually read the whole thing cover to cover. We'll give you a reading plan. We'll give you helps to encourage you so you can stick with it. Um, We want to challenge you, secondly, to pray for the lost. Every day, to pray for a different group of lost people who you know by name and keep those before the Lord constantly. Third, to engage in missions. And that may mean getting involved in a mission organization or mission uh, project we, we are already involved in, like ESL, or like Mission Conroe, like Family Promise. It could mean going on a mission trip. We're going to offer two or three of those to other locations. Um, it could mean getting involved in something uh, in local schools or city and county government or local neighborhoods that we're going to offer in the year to come. But we want every member of our church to be involved in hands-on mission work at least once over the coming year. And then number four, commit to generosity. And that may mean different things for different people. It may mean that some of you may start giving financially for the first time, or you may um, start giving more financially. It may involve the time you give to God's work or your talents or finding a new way to use something, some resource God has given you. But those four challenges, I just think if a church this size was that committed to Christ over the coming year, we could see incredible changes in us and in the people we know. And God is going to do great things when we give ourselves more fully to Him. So be in prayer for that in the days to come. We're in Revelation today, and we're also going to be in Hebrews, Hebrews 12. Uh, So get ready to jump there in a moment. But what we're talking about is a city that the Bible mentions often called the New Jerusalem. And we're going to take a real quick tour of the New Jerusalem as based in Scripture this morning. Now here's, here's my challenge for you this morning. When we're talking about heaven, we're talking about the things the Scriptures say about heaven. The temptation is to listen to all this, to read all this information, and to say, that's nice, and to just go on with your life. You know, sort of like when you tour the Moody Mansion in Galveston or the Hog House in Houston. By the way, that was someone's name. I'm a hog. Literally her name. Had this beautiful house. You can go and tour her, her house and see all this great stuff. And then you get in your car and you go home and you're like, ah, that was nice. Maybe take a few pictures. I don't want that to happen with this series. I don't want this to happen today as we look at the New Jerusalem. Because when God brings this information before His people, it's intended to change them. The first time God talks about the New Jerusalem in Scripture is in the book of Isaiah, and then a hundred years later through Ezekiel. Those two prophets were bookending a very crucial and, and, and awful time for the, for, the, for the people of God This was a time when the Israelites were losing their nation. Isaiah came before to say, here's what's going to happen. Ezekiel came after to say, here's why it happened. But essentially, imagine if suddenly you and I woke up and we didn't live in America anymore. In mass, we had been carried to a distant land far away where people didn't speak our language or worship our God. That's what happened to the people of God. Not only that, as much as we love our country, the Israelites to them, it wasn't just land, it was where God lived. They actually saw the temple of God, the place where they believed God dwelt on earth, destroyed, raised to the ground. They saw their city, the walls knocked down. They saw everything destroyed. 
And so it was very tempting for them to say, God has given up on us. And if the Israelites would have been like any other people, we would only know of them through history. They would be like the Philistines, the Ammonites, the Hittites, the other people you read about in the Old Testament. You know, something you'd say, oh yeah, there was that people thousands of years ago. But because God gives them this vision of a place called the New Jerusalem, because God gives them this infusion of hope that says someday there's going to be a world, a new heaven, and a new earth, a world where the people of God will have justice and peace and lions will lay down with lambs or wolves will lie down with lambs and lions will eat straw like oxen and soldiers will beat their swords into plowshares and no one will ever kill again. No one will ever threaten. No one will ever be afraid. And as a result, the Israelites didn't go the way of those other people's. And as a result, there is a Jewish people today. In fact, if I can just say this, this is just my opinion. But if you consider how many different dictators and despots and kings and empires down through history have decided they're going to wipe out the Jews. I mean, it's amazing how many times this has happened in history. And yet those people are still here. And they still believe in the same God. And you know what that tells me? God is real. God has a purpose for the Jewish people. Then a hundred years later, or hundreds of years later, along comes the Apostle John. And John is the last one of the original twelve to still be alive. And he's an old man and he's been arrested by the Roman Empire because for whatever reason, the Roman Empire has turned its wrath and its power upon the little church. The, the movement of Jesus Christ, a tiny minority in the nation, and yet it's growing, and they're starting to persecute God's people. They're starting to put them to death. They've arrested the oldest disciple, John, and they've thrown him into exile on an island called Patmos off the coast of Greece. And he's there on a Sunday, and he gets this vision. God gives him this vision to share with his people to encourage them not to give up. And we call that vision the book of Revelation. And you know the rest of that story, right? I mean... The church didn't die. The church grew. The church is still growing here 2,000 years later, and Rome itself is literally ancient history. I mean, like one historian said, today we name our sons and daughters after the early followers of Christ, Mary, Peter, Paul. We name our dogs after the Caesars. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Because of hope. Because of the hope that there's something better coming. So we're going to look at that hope this morning. We're going to see the hope that changed the world. And I want to start right here with Revelation 21, starting with verse 10. And we're going to look at some of these details. We're going to talk about them. And, and, and then we'll talk about three different kinds of people and how they respond to these promises. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had, high, it had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it is wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length. If you don't know what a stadia is, don't worry. I'm going to translate that in a little bit. And as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. 
The wall was made of jasper, and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh hyacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was, as, was of gold as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So there are three kinds of people who hear these promises, and I'm not talking about the kinds of people who don't believe in this stuff. We're going to talk about them later in another message. But three kinds of people who believe in the existence of God, believe in the existence of heaven, but respond in three different ways to this message, to messages like this. There's the first kind of person who says, heaven sounds great, but it's an impossible dream for someone like me. I've done too many bad things. I know what kind of person I am, and I don't belong in heaven. There's a second kind of person who says, heaven sounds great. Um, it sounds like a perfect consolation prize. That, that's who I am. It, it's, I, I, I just look at it as a consolation prize. If I've got to die, I might, it's good to know that there's some place I'm going afterwards. And then there's a third kind of person, and that's the person for whom heaven is their future home. And that's how they look at it. That's where I'm going to live someday. I want to go there. And we're going to talk about those three kinds of people at the end of the message. But right now, let's get back to this description in Revelation. So what does this mean? I mean, the city he's describing doesn't sound like any city on earth today. For instance, the walls of the city... Like if you translate that term, the, the, the cubits into feet, the walls of the city he describes are 200 feet thick. Imagine a wall that is as thick as two-thirds of a football field. That's what he's talking about. And it goes all the way around the city, which, by the way, the city is 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles wide, and 1,400 miles high. Now, does that mean that there are skyscrapers that just reach that high? Or does that mean that it's a whole cube, a perfect cube? That's how some people picture it. Just a, a cube that's 600,000 stories of living space. The, the gates are made of a pearl. Each one is one single pearl. Can you imagine the size of the oyster that birthed that pearl, right? The foundations are, are made up of precious stones. The same stones, by the way, if you look at Leviticus, that made up the breastplate of the high priest. Now, a city this size, just, just, to get, just to give you some perspective, a city this size would be almost as large as the entire United States. A city this size would stretch way beyond the bounds of heaven's present or earth's present atmosphere. So what does it mean? Some people, some scholars will tell you that all these things are just symbolic of greater realities. They'll say, listen, this is the book of Revelation. We don't take the book of Revelation in its details literally. We know that Christ is coming back. We know other things that are corroborated in other parts of the scripture. But John, in essence, in Revelation was writing in code. And so we don't interpret these, we don't take these 
visions, these details, literally. For instance, when he says that Jesus was a lamb that was slaughtered, we, don't, we know that Jesus wasn't literally a baby sheep, right? That is symbolic of something. So they would say that John, you know, when he's talking about the size and the depth and all this, don't take that literally. It just means that this is a perfect city. For instance, he uses the term 12 a lot. There were 12 disciples. There were 12 tribes of Israel. So it's a symbolic number. Don't take it literally. Others will say, no, no, this is a literal city. In fact, there are some who believe that the new Jerusalem is the present heaven, the intermediate place. We go and we die. And then when Christ returns, that place is coming down here and it's going to be the capital city of the new earth. And they say, don't worry about the fact that it's so big because maybe the, the new earth is going to be much bigger than the present earth. And, and what they'll say is it's going to be the capital city, but we won't all live there. I, I, absolutely, uh, we see in Revelation 21 that there are other nations on the new earth. So you and I might live in the new Texas, but we would travel to the new Jerusalem whenever we wanted to because that's where the presence of God would dwell. That's where, that's where Jesus would live and we'd go to see him. I don't know. I don't know how that works exactly. I will say this. I do believe the new Jerusalem is a real place because it's talked about in other books of the Bible, not just in Revelation. For instance, look at, uh, look at, verse, look at Hebrews 12, 22. Hebrews 12.22 says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So here, in a book that's not apocalyptic in nature, a book where the author of Hebrews is writing in literal terms, he talks about a real city called the New Jerusalem. So I think it's a real place. I think it will be in existence on the new earth. Whether we can accept the words in Revelation as literal or symbolic of other things, we'll find out when we get there. But here's what we can say based on everything we read in Ezekiel and Isaiah, based on what we read in Revelation and Hebrews, it's going to be like no city you've ever been to before. It's going to be a place where we'll see sights we've never seen. It's going to be a place where we mingle with angels. You know, the Bible says some of us have seen angels unaware, but very few of us knew we were looking at an angel. We'll see them in their glory, and it will be fantastic. The presence of God is there, and we will revel in that. We will mingle with the entire church. We'll worship alongside people who speak other languages, who grew up differently than us in different times and places. We'll have nothing in common with them except the blood of Jesus, and that will be enough for us to feel like we've met a new member of our family. We will be in a place better than any place we've ever known before. And yes, we'll be reunited with loved ones, but I think it's going to be even more exciting in that new Jerusalem to see people we've only read about in the Scriptures. Can you imagine meeting David, meeting Ruth, meeting Abraham, meeting Sarah, meeting uh, Matthew and Peter and John and Paul and Mary Magdalene? Can you imagine sitting and listening to them talk and tell you stories that there weren't room for in the Bible, but stories that actually happened to them or hearing the stories of the Bible told first person by the people who experienced them. We'll get to experience those things. But what does it mean? Because this is the part that sticks out to me in, in Hebrews. What does it mean that says, we'll, we'll be there with the blood of Christ that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel? What does that mean exactly? Well, in the story in, in Genesis... Cain kills Abel, his brother. It's the first act of violence in human history. I think it's noteworthy that it took place within a family. 
If you think your family's messed up, that's the nature of our world, right? Families uh, experience sin, experience violence, just like other relationships. So Cain kills Abel, and he thinks he's gotten away with it because it happened in a field where nobody could see. But the Scriptures say in Genesis that the blood of Abel cried out, to the, cried out from the ground to God the Father. That was, that's a symbolic way of, of God saying, I saw what you did. You think you got away with it, but I saw. So the blood of Abel speaks of guilt and shame. The blood of Abel points a finger and says, I know what you did, and you're not going to get away with it. And all of us, every single one of us is under the blood of Abel. Every single one of us is guilty. Every single one of us struggles with shame. Because we're all sinners. Every single one of us. If I told you every bad thing I've ever done, said, or thought, you wouldn't want me to be your pastor anymore, much less your friend. We're all stained. But in the New Jerusalem, the blood of Abel doesn't exist anymore. It's the blood of Christ that controls everything. And the blood of Christ speaks a different word. It speaks a word that says, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how bad you've messed up. You are forgiven. You are free. You are made new. And all that guilt and all that shame is gone. And if you're a person that just can't get over some of the bad things you've done, just understand, it won't always be that way. That's what it means. In that city, there will be freedom for us. And that's maybe the best part. We'll be in the presence of God and we'll be through with our sin. Now, I know that's been a quick tour and I want to encourage you to keep on studying. If you haven't read Isaiah 60 through 66, read it. If you haven't read Ezekiel 40 through 48, take the time to read it. I'm not saying it's all easy to understand, but at least know what the Bible says. I want to encourage you to pick up a book called Heaven by Randy Alcorn. Out of all the books I've read outside of the Bible, it's done the best job of helping me uh, collate everything the Bible says about heaven and envision it. I don't agree with everything Alcorn says, but it's, it's a powerful book for helping you set your mind on things above. So study this stuff, meditate on this stuff, but right now I want to talk to three different kinds of people in this room before we're done. Because as I said, there are three different ways people look at heaven. First of all, there's the people who say it's an impossible dream. I mean, possible for some, yes. Possible for good people, possible for people who've done things right, who haven't made the mistakes I've made, absolutely, but not for me. I can remember when I, I was just a young man in my mid-20s. I hadn't been preaching very long. And a, a member of my family passed away. I didn't know him well. He was my grandpa's uncle. So, so think about how distant that relation is. Uh, my grandpa's uncle died, and I was called to do the, do the funeral sermon. I'd only met this guy once. Now, my grandpa's uncle had been kind of a rascal in life. As a young man, he was literally a bootlegger. He's the first person I ever met who actually was a bootlegger. And then later in life, he was just well known for, yeah, boy, he, he knows how to drink and he knows how to fight and he knows how to, you know, he has his way with women and, and he was just that kind of guy. And then late in life, very late in life, he met a very good woman and she led him to Christ. They get married. At the end of his life, he's living in a nursing home and he still has his guitar and every day he's writing songs about Jesus and singing them to whoever will come by his room to listen. I mean, this is the change that happened in this guy's life in, in his 80s. So I preached a message on John 3 and how Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And I said, some of you in this room perhaps are like Nicodemus and you think, well, I'm good enough. I deserve heaven, but you're wrong. None of us does. We all have to be born again to get there. 
And I said, some of you in this room probably think, I'm way too sinful. God could never forgive me. God could never take me there. But you're wrong because God can make you someone new, someone who is fit for his presence. You can be born again. And I told the story of my grandpa's uncle and how God made this incredible change in his life and how as long as you've got breath in your lungs, there's still time to make that change. And when I got done, I know it wasn't a, a, a sermonic masterpiece, but when I got done, I was standing there and people are coming up and shaking my hand and this older man comes and this guy walked up. I'd never seen him before, but you could tell, you could look in his face and tell this guy's lived a tough life. I don't know how old he was, but there was a lot of miles on that face. And he comes up to me and he real quietly, he says, I like what you said. That sounds really good. You know, I, I, I'd really love... I'd really love if that could happen to me, you know, to be born again. And I said, well, well, it can happen. I mean, it can happen right now. And he said, no, no, not, not for me, not for someone like me. And I started to say something else, but there was a guy, I noticed right then, a guy standing about 10 feet away who was looking at the guy talking to me, and he was motioning real violently saying, come on, we got to go, we got to go now. And the old guy just walked off with his friend, and I never saw him again. And it just breaks my heart to think that that guy left thinking, the new life is for other people, but it's not for me. And if you're one of those people here this morning who would say, there's good people, and yeah, they deserve heaven, and yeah, I can see how God could bring them in and, and make them right, but why would he waste his time on me? I want you to understand something. Jesus Christ shed his blood for you the same as he did for them. It took the same amount of grace to save them as it would to save you. And there's plenty where that came from. And the blood will never lose its power. And so if you want to know beyond a shadow of a doubt today that you're born again, that you have new life, that you belong to Him, I want to encourage you at the end of this message, come walking up front while we're singing that last song. Talk to me or talk to Alan and we'll tell you the next steps to take. It can be the best day of your life. The second kind of person, and that's this second person is, is the kind of person, I, I think there's a lot of people in this category sitting in this room right now, not because I know each of you that well, but just because there's a lot of Christians who look at heaven this way. It's a consolation prize. Man, if I got to die, it's good to know I'm going to a place that's good. I'm glad I know that eternity's taken care of. Now I can get back to focusing on the things I want in this life. That's how a lot of us live. It's like walking out of our insurance agent's office and going, good to know, I'm all taken care of, just in case the worst happens. Salvation, my friends, is not insurance. No offense to any of you who sell insurance, I'm glad you do what you do, but it's something much, much better than that. See, the problem with the idea of heaven as a consolation prize is we think that it's our job. God will take care of our eternal soul. So my focus should be on getting the life I want right now. Checking off all the items on my bucket list. Attaining all the achievements that I think are important. Accumulating all the prizes and presents and toys and honors that I need. We're basically trying to build heaven on earth. And I think about that story that Jesus told. We call it the story of the rich fool. He talked about a farmer who one day noticed that his crops were coming in better than he ever could have dreamed. In fact, once he harvested and he saw how much grain he brought in, he realized, you know, if I kept all this grain for myself, if I found a way to store it, I would never have to work again. I am set for life. So what did he do? 
He built barns. He built silos so he could store every single bit of that grain. And he sat back and he said, now I've got it made. Now I've got what I've always wanted. And Jesus at the end of that story says, you fool, don't you know you're going to die tonight and someone else is going to get all that stuff you saved up for yourself. There's two things about that story that I think are interesting. Number one, the rich fool did exactly what we as Americans think is smart, right? He capitalized on his gains. He said, I'm going to save this up. I'm going to build heaven on earth for myself. I'm going to build my own empire. And Jesus called that man a fool. The second thing I want you to notice about that story, and you can look it up and see if I'm right. It never says in that story that that man went to hell. It never says that he was lost. It's not a story about his eternal destiny. It's a story about how he lived right now in light of eternity. It's not a story about being saved or lost. It's a story about if you believe there's a place called heaven, if you believe that in this next world what we do now matters, then how can you live in such a way that your whole goal is to accumulate stuff for yourself? That's a foolish way to live. Because don't you realize that the moment you die, everything you've accumulated is gone to you? Your grandchildren are going to waste it on something, right? It's going to fall apart. Whereas... What you gave away, what you used to serve God, what you used to bless others will be yours forever. Isn't it ironic? Everything you strive so hard to keep for yourself is gone the moment you die, but everything you give away in the name of Christ is yours forever. So Jesus is saying, heaven is not a consolation prize. Store up treasure there. Live in such a way that you're building your empire, your heaven, your glory there because you're investing in things that last forever. And what lasts forever? Look to your left and look to your right. That's what lasts forever, the people who God has brought into your life. There's a third kind of person, and that's the kind I hope you are, and that's the person who looks at heaven as his or her future home. They're focused on it. They're fixated on it. In fact, let me just tell you this story. So about this time of year, Three years ago, so 2015, November 2015, was around the time we started to realize, Carrie and me started to realize, I think God's calling us to First Baptist Conroe. And we'd been talking to the committee here for a few months. We'd had several meetings. We thought it was going well. We'd been praying about it. We felt positively about it. Now, it was still a few months until we came here. The committee was very thorough. And I'm glad for that. But in the meantime, we believed God was leading us here. And you know what that did to us? That made us rather obsessed with Conroe. Now, I knew about Conroe when I was a kid. Um, My dad had been in the army with a guy who grew up in Conroe, and so we used to get together with them every once in a while. We never came here, but they would come to our house or we'd meet somewhere, so I knew of the existence of a place called Conroe. I used to drive through here on my way to Dallas every once in a while, but I knew nothing about the town itself. So what did I do once I started to know this is my future home? I started researching. I wanted to know everything there was to know. I know, I know this is going to surprise you to hear a preacher say this, but thank God for the internet because I was able to find out where the good restaurants were, where the nice places to live are, what there is to do, what it looks like, what it's like to live here. I was able to envision myself here. As often as I could, I would think about it. Why? Because this was my future home. And that's a place where I'm going to live, hopefully, the rest of my earthly life. But what about the place we're going to live for eternity? Shouldn't we be at least that obsessed? 
In fact, if heaven becomes your future home, if that's the way you think about it, then it will become your present obsession. You'll, be, you'll, you'll want to think about that more than you think about anything else. And contrary to what you might think, the more you think about that world, the better you'll live down here. Because instead of hoarding things for yourself, instead of getting worked up about the things that don't matter, you'll be focused on eternally significant things. Instead of being all about what I have, you'll be about all about what I've given, all about what I've done for others, all about what I've done for Christ that glorifies Him. It transforms the way we live. In fact, look with me at Hebrews eleven thirteen. Hebrews 11, some of you know, is the chapter of the Bible where we learn about faith. What does faith look like? It looks like people like Moses and, and Abraham and Sarah and Rahab and so forth. And so all these heroes are mentioned all through Hebrews 11. And then there's this part in the middle that we often skim over. It says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They didn't receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from afar. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. So the key to living a life of greatness, according to that chapter, is to know that this isn't our home to have your mind fixed on a better world, to realize all the time, all the time, this is not what it's about. This world is not what it's about. The world to come is what lasts forever. To live in such a way that you know every relationship, every decision, every word echoes in eternity. That's the way to live. To live in such a way that people look at you and say, you're a little different, aren't you? Now, I'm not saying there's anything sanctified about being weird, okay? I'm not saying that goofiness is an attribute that God admires. That's different. I'm saying that there's such a sense of peace in you, such a sense of grace, an ability to forgive others, uh, just a, a general sense of, I'm not getting worked up about the stuff everybody else gets worked up about because I know that doesn't last forever. But something else does. That makes us aliens and strangers in this world in a way that is compelling, that draws us and draws others to the God who made us. So let me just close by saying this. In this world, we tend to admire people for some really odd reasons. We admire the guy who buys low and sells high and does it often enough to build his own kingdom full of toys. We admire the woman who's built with certain physical proportions or the man who has a certain amount of physical speed or strength, even though we know, even though we know over the decades those things are going to go away and yet we put them on our magazine covers and we get their autographs and we think they're wonderful. We admire the diva who calls attention to herself through her outlandish behavior, even though between you and me she doesn't have a lot of talent. We admire the talk show host who makes us all feel better because he ridicules people who think differently than we do and, and just basically continues to drive a wedge in our society and make us more and more divided. You know that in the next world, in the new Jerusalem, those qualities won't be celebrated at all. That's not what we'll exalt. I don't know if there's going to be magazines, but those people won't be on the covers of magazines. Those won't be the things we talk about and aspire to. I'm not saying those people won't get in. By God's grace, they can be saved just like I can. But if they're there, they won't be bragging about their riches or their beauty or their strength or their talent or their fame. 
They'll be boasting in the grace of a God who's so amazing. And so instead of celebrating their earthly lives, those people and us will stand there gazing at and admiring a whole different set of luminaries. People who live very, very different kinds of life in this world. The kind of people who never called attention to themselves but constantly gave themselves away. The people who made the world a better place but didn't necessarily get any credit for it. The first will be last, Jesus said often. And the last will be first. He who humbles himself will be exalted, and he who exalts himself will be humbled. It's going to be a great upside-down thing happening at the end in that new Jerusalem. Those people will come into our presence and we'll be awed by them. People who never got any attention in this world, our jaws will drop as we see the trail of souls they bring with them, of people who say, that one, that person set me free. That person encouraged me when I was just about to call it quits. That person showed me grace when no one else would. That person rescued me by the power of God. We'll see their good deeds they did. They'll be shouted from the rooftops. Things that were done in secret or overlooked will be told to the whole world, to millions of people, and we'll celebrate the ways they glorified God. And we'll we'll, we'll celebrate the way They lived lives of spectacular character, humility and grace, courage and boldness, and absolute righteousness. We will stand together and we'll celebrate those people alongside the God who says, well done, good and faithful servant, and we'll rejoice as they take their crowns and cast them down at the feet of King Jesus in everlasting worship. And oh, what a day that will be.